do it. <clears throat> Welcome to the Church of Mavis Radio Show. It's Friday night. It's uh, 7.06 p.m. Central. You listen to United Public Radio, 107.7 FM, New Orleans. And uh, check out Dead Sky Publishing. Uh, they have some guests coming up. They just had Chad Lutsky on. Uh, they do some great Weird West, Splatter Western books. Uh, we've been on a Weird West kick, and they have some guests coming up in November <clears throat> that are that do these Weird West books from uh, DeadSkyPublishing.com. So check that out. And uh, let's see here. We got Jay with us tonight. What's going on, Jeff? How's your weather today? <laughs> it's humid. We're getting, but it's, we're getting cold up here. It's humid, but it actually has been hitting 40s down, uh, 49 and stuff. So that's good. And that's early for here. So that's going to tell you what the winter is going to be like, probably. The it's ice age has cold. begun. <laughs> we got Mark DeWiziak with us tonight. Uh, Mystery of Mysteries The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. It's great to have you here. What a great subject. I've loved Poe since I'm a child uh, since I was a child and uh still do. Definitely perfect for this this season. How are you doing? I'm doing fine now and something we have in common then because uh, Poe is an author I've carried throughout my entire life as well. So uh you know, I, I don't know how old you were when you read your first Poe story. Um, but I'm gonna guess because most people get Poe around the seventh grade for the first time. That's yeah. about the time in school you get the Telltale Heart and the Raven, and uh, that's a great age to get it. But horror fans tend to get Poe a little earlier, uh, so I'm going to guess you were probably a little bit younger than the seventh grade when you. It was uh, probably sixth Poe. or seventh grade. I remember reading Stephen King in sixth grade, so it was, I, yeah, there was some weird books. And I was, I remember a Clockwork Orange. I don't know. I don't think my school gave that to me, but I swear I was one. I don't think that was ever in a school curriculum, yeah. was it? There was for me I, in ninth grade. They made us read that. And I, I thought so. so. It must cool. have been. But I, yeah, and it's it's extremely violent, and I'm extremely, and it's got some weird words in it, especially the the, the stick Euro speak that they talk, and I'm dyslexic, so I I just I couldn't get the book. It was it was yeah. just so hard to even. You know, rifle through it so my mom helped, helped me cheat we rented the movie and, and watched the movie oh so my I could god how old were you? <laughs> are you traumatized no, it was, it's a hard book it's a hard know, book how to old read. were you though to watch the movie is what i was asking how old were you 13 you know, how old are you in ninth grade 12 13 years old i don't remember that's a little young that's a little young for clockwork orange it's a little yeah it's, it's an extremely violent book yeah. <laughs> there was just some story about some teacher showing his kids that weird winnie the pooh horror movie like in a very low oh, grade God. that's like yeah, people, I don't, people are I don't going crazy see it. i don't want to see it i saw yeah. the, the like the nah, little i have picture it. window on roku and it's like look yeah i haven't uh well mark uh i know i've seen the pale blue eye and there's a raven's hollow uh edgar Allan poe horror movie i haven't seen raven's hollow yet but i enjoyed the pale blue eye but what do we know about his the military stuff? Because those of those movies seem to kind of embellish when he's in that. And I'm sure they take liberties. I'm sure, but <laughs> oh, everybody's always taking liberties. <laughs> I mean, you know, you go all the way back to the 1930s and the films with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi called The Black Cat and The Raven, and they've got very little to do with Poe. And then you get to the Roger Corman cycle, and they too. Uh, they might use a little germ of a, an idea of what Poe wrote about. Um, 
Tifel not staying true to Poe, both his writing and his personality, is sort of the uh, the standard in in all things. Uh, the films mostly present Poe the way he is perceived in the popular culture, and that's the stereotype of Poe. You know, we have created a caricature of Poe, and it's a fun caricature. It really is. I mean, we've made of him our our grandfather of goth, our titan of terror, our sultan of the supernatural. He is that guy to us, and that's because we've made him that. And he's the guy we put on, uh, you know, coffee mugs. You know, we put his image on T-shirts. We put it, we've made plushies of him. We make action figures of him. Yes. We do all these things. We, we, we create this kind of uh, funhouse version of Poe because it's fun and we like that Poe. And um, that's great, but that's not who he was. He wasn't anything like that. And uh, the pop culture and uh, a lot of the people in his time after he died, uh, they sort of created a, a fictional Poe. And it's the fictional Poe that shows up in the movies and in the in, in all the drawings and in all of the I, I, iconic stuff that we create for Poe. Um, and the military is, is is an interesting part of his life because he joins the military after he, he leaves Richmond, after he has a break with his foster father. And he goes to Boston and he uh, still very young and he publishes his first volume of poetry while he's in Boston. And then he joins the army under an alias, Edgar mm -hmm. Perry. And uh, he is sent to Fort Moultrie. Uh, he is sent to uh, uh, South Carolina and he serves at uh, this area. And he's a good soldier. He's actually a very good soldier. Yeah, he gets rapidly promoted to as far as he, as he could go. He goes all the way to Sergeant uh, as a soldier. And as an adult, as, as, as after he leaves the service, he um, he never loses that kind of military gait. We always think of Poe uh, walking slump-shouldered and all around with a cloak around him and sallow eyes. And I'm so goth. And that's not who Poe was. <laughs> Poe po walked briskly, and he was athletic. Do we think of Poe as athletic? Does anybody think of Poe as athletic? But Poe was an excellent boxer, an excellent long-distance swimmer. He had excellent. Uh, he could win any jumping or leaping contest. And he walked everywhere. He was really, for the most part of his life, pretty healthy. The last couple of years, you know, he only lived to be 40. And the last couple of years, his health starts to go off the track. But that military bearing that he got, uh, he never kind of lost it. So if you met Poe on the streets of Philadelphia, say, in 1843, you would have met a guy who had no mustache, sideburns, handsome, and high... You know, high hairline, big forehead, and a and a, and a healthy, robust guy. Uh, and again, we don't think of Poe in that way at all. But that's who the real person was. That's the real person who wrote all those stories. And then after he gets out of the army, uh, he lobbies to get accepted into West Point. So he goes to West Point. He's only at West Point for like a couple months. He's not there very long because he uh, his his foster father is not sending him enough money to support his 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 studies there and uh there's a final break with his foster father at this point and he also has discovered the rigors of west point west point today is no picnic if you're a cadet at west point back then it was a hundred times more severe uh the dropout rate at, at west point was, was was it was not uncommon for for cadets to drop out in the first year because 
there was a whole set of rules you were given and all the rules were things you couldn't do. And among them was you couldn't play cards. You couldn't read at night for fun. That was considered corrupting. You know, everything was about you got up, you drilled, you had breakfast, you drilled some more, you went to classes, you drilled some more, you had lunch, you drilled some more, you went to classes. That was your life at West Point. And it was a very, very, you know, Spartan existence. So uh, the one thing Poe learned how to do when he was at West Point was that he and his roommate uh, became uh, expert at sneaking off campus and getting a, a jug of, of booze and bringing it back to the dormitory. And then everybody would come by their room for uh, a slug of something every once in a while. Uh, and in order to do that, one of you had to be the lookout to look out for the guard. And the other was the runner who would go down to the, the local pub restaurant and come back with a jug. So he got very good at that. Um, but, you know, he conspired to have himself court-martialed at the end of just a little while at West Point. And, you know, he stopped going to classes. He stopped going to chapel. You had to go to chapel. That was one of the things you had to go. If you didn't, you got demerits. And once you got enough demerits, you were a candidate for being court-martialed. So Poe has himself court-martialed. And that's it. I mean, that's his military career. Uh, you know, Fort Moultrie, Sergeant, West Point. And that's the extent of his military uh, training and career. And what happened with the court martial? You... It, it, it was a formality. He wasn't even there. He left. He basically, uh, and then was told later that, you know, the court martial went through. It was just a formality. It was a rubber stamping. It wasn't, there was no punishment. There was no, there was, he, it was a student leaving. It was nothing more than that. And what did he do after that? I mean, what was his? Well, after he leaves, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's almost more important to sort of go the other way first. Okay. And, and, and to see where he was before uh, he, he goes into the service because Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston. Now, most people do not associate Boston with Edgar Allan Poe, but his mother was an actress, Eliza Poe, and she was a very good actress. She was, uh, back then, being an actress in America was a very tough life. Uh, first off, it's not like acting today. If you went to a city and you, as a part of a theater company, and you set up your, in a theater, you didn't just do one play and were there for like two or three weeks. The theater going audience wasn't that big in any American city back in the early 1800s. So you had to offer something different every single night you were there. They were expecting something new every night. So one night you might be doing Shakespeare. The next night you're doing a farce. The next night you're doing a melodrama. The next night you're doing a comedy. You had to be good at a lot of things. And Eliza Poe was very good at a lot of things. She could sing beautifully. She was elegant dancer. She could do comedy. She could do farce. She could do Shakespeare. And she could commit an immense number of roles to memory. She had at her fingertips the ability to do a staggering number of roles. And when you weren't acting, you were expected to be taking tickets or moving sets. And you were also constantly moving from city to city where something was raging that could kill you almost any time of year. It might have been cholera. It might have been yellow fever. It might have been tuberculosis, everywhere, which was everywhere at the time. So Eliza Poe only lives to be 24 years old. Uh, Edgar is, is not yet three when she dies. He's orphaned. His father was also an actor, and he died about the same time. So Poe's orphaned, and he's taken in by the Allen family of Richmond, Virginia. And it is from them we get the Allen of Edgar Allan Poe. 
And John Allen, who was a very stern, austere Scotsman, who sort of believed in people being self-made men, and he wasn't. He doesn't get wealthy until a wealthy uncle of his dies and he inherits it all. He always treats Poe as sort of a charity case. He never formally adopts Poe. He's always a foster child, so Poe is never fully accepted. And Poe is constantly losing women. He's always constantly losing women who love him and care for him. He loses his mother at, before he's three. Uh, Frances Allen, John Allen's wife, who, who seemed to love him and, and wanted, she dies young. Uh, the mother of one of his best friends, who seems to understand him and becomes also the surrogate mother for him in Richmond, she dies. So he's constantly losing women. So then, so he finally breaks with his father, or his fought with his foster father. And John Allen, by the way, he does die a fabulously wealthy man. When he does die, he leaves money to illegitimate children. He leaves not a dime to Edgar Allan Poe. Nothing. So <laughs> Poe leaves the West Point. He's destitute. He has no money. He's got no prospects. He goes to New York first, and then he ends up in Baltimore. And he goes to the, the, because the Poe family was, was from Baltimore. And he goes to the home of his aunt, uh, Mariah Clem, who everybody called Muddy. And it is here in this house that he gets the first sort of semblance of a real family. And um, she's going to be going to become a surrogate mother to him. And uh, she has a daughter, Virginia. And um, Poe eventually gets a job in Richmond, Virginia, as the a literary critic and editor of the Southern Literary Messenger. And it's during this time he uh, makes a bid to marry Virginia. Now, this is the part of the story that there's no way that a modern audience doesn't hear this and it doesn't sound, for lack of a better word, icky. Okay. Virginia is his first cousin and she's 13 years old. So this is kind of Jerry Lee Lewis territory right now. You know, he's going to marry his first cousin. Now, back then, child brides were not uncommon and marrying your first cousin was not sure. uncommon, especially among the aristocracy. But you say this today and people hear it and they go, Ew. you know, well, for whatever else it was, this was a very happy marriage and a very happy household. Because remember, his aunt is now going to become his mother-in-law and she lives with them. And the three of them become a very happy household. She approves. Uh, the Poes are very happy. Uh, he teaches her music and gives her lessons. They play duets together. He plays the flute. She has a beautiful singing voice. And uh, it's a very happy household. And here he gets this, this sense of being fully accepted as, as, a, as a person. And I, for a while, he has this until Virginia dies of tuberculosis in 1845. And then Poe sort of goes off the tracks and off the rails. And the last few years of his life are kind of a desperate bid to find love. And it eventually ends with him dying in October of 1849. So that's kind of the short, you know, Poe's life is defined by five American cities. Boston, where he's, uh, he's born, Richmond, where he grows up and where he makes his literary reputation later on, Baltimore, where he finds his family, Philadelphia, where he has his peak years from 1838 to 1844, and he produces most of his great stories during this period, New York, where he moves into a cottage and is living at the time of his death, and those five cities sort of are the framework for Poe's life.
Definitely. I'm like seeing it in my head and living it like a movie and seeing his character, you know, the, his face and everything. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. And uh, a, a lot of uh, diseases and things like that. And God, coming up in the orphan, that's got to be, that's hard. I'm sure no matter wh what, what time zone you're in or what year. Geographically, Poe's life is defined by those five cities. Emotionally, his life is defined by loss. He's just constantly losing people throughout his life. And that's not uncommon. I mean, death was was much more up close and personal back then. And there was a yeah, lot of child I think the, death. I think the average age people lived to in the 1800s is around 35, 40 years old, if you were lucky. Well, you know, you did have some long livers. But yes, you had a lot dragging that, that down. And, you know, not the least of which was uh, the fact that, you know, there's no... Uh, there's no knowledge of germs. There's no knowledge of how transmission of germs. You know, practically everybody probably was contaminated with tuberculosis back then because it's an airborne disease. Everybody's in very close contact with each other. And a staggering number of people probably were carrying around. There might have been an active case, but pr practically a staggering percentage of the population yeah. was contaminated in some way with tuberculosis. So, yeah, it is, It you know, it's, it is a period where but throughout all this, you know, uh, you know, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because if you look at the book, the the the, the subtitle, the, the main title of the book is A Mystery of Mysteries, which comes from one of Poe's best poems, a, a, a lesser known poem. It's not as well known as, say, The Raven or Annabelle Lee, but it's certainly one of my favorite of his poems. It's called Spirits of the Dead. And he wrote it while he was still very young, a teenager. And um it kind of eerily predicts a lot of what's going to come in his life, the spirits of the dead. And um, the last line of the poem is the title of the book, A Mystery of Mysteries. And the subtitle is The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Now that's reversed from what you expect it to be. You, you, the, the standard biography, it's supposed to be the life and death of fill in the blank. I reversed it, you know, and I reversed it for a lot of reasons. Not the least of which was any discussion of Edgar Allan Poe always seems to start with the mystery of his death, which is kind of interesting, you know, that, um, you know, any most biographies start logically where where life starts, where when somebody is born. And yet with Poe, we always seem to start at the end. We always seem to start in that those mysterious last days. And I think one of the reasons is because uh Poe has one of the great literary stage exits of all time, if not the greatest, if not the, the, the greatest single. There, there, are, there are three great literary stage exits of, uh, in, 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 in literary history. The first is Moliere, you know, because Moliere is a French playwright and an actor. He, he's not just a playwright. He's also an actor. And, you know, he appears in plays that he has written. So Moliere... They're premiering his last play, and he's dying. He's dying of tuberculosis. So he's appearing on stage, and he's in his death throes, basically. And he gets, uh, he collapses on stage. And they drag him into the wings, and they revive him, and they push him back out on stage. He goes back <laughs> out on stage, and he finishes the play. He finishes the play, and then he goes home, and he dies. You know, wow. that's, that is just a great stage exit for somebody who is both a playwright and an actor and the second great stage exit is is mark twain 
you know, because Twain is born on November 30th, 1835, with Halley's Comet visible in the night sky overhead. And a year before he dies, Twain correctly predicts he will die when the comet comes back in April of 1910. And he pulls it off. He actually pulls it off. He tells an audience in, in, in 1909, the Almighty has said no doubt that there are these two indefinable freaks, Halley's Comet and me. They came in together. They must go out together. And he told the audience, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. He comes in with the comet. He goes out with the comet. And that's a little detail that would not be out of place in Greek myth about a hero, a hero born with a comet and dying with the same comet coming back. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. But Poe dies under circumstances which reflect his two greatest literary achievements. Poe is the father of the modern detective story. He creates the role model for Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot and every super sleuth that's going to follow. He creates the character of master detective C. Auguste Dupin. And Dupin is in three short stories that Poe wrote, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Marie Roget, and The Purloined Letter, which is the best of the three. And that character is the role model, direct role model for Sherlock Holmes. How do we know that? Because Arthur Conan Doyle told us that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Conan Doyle it comes to America after home, the home stories have become a sensation. And he's at a press conference and the room is full of American reporters and they think they're going to get him. And they say, well, didn't you just steal your Sherlock Holmes from Poe's Dupin? And Doyle says, yep, absolutely. That's exactly what I did. You know, <laughs> and he gives Poe full credit for inventing this. And then in uh, 1909, on the 100th anniversary of, of Poe's birth, there is a dinner in, in London attended by a banquet full of, of authors. And Conan Doyle gives the keynote address that night. And he says, where was the mystery story before Poe breathed life into it? So Poe is the acknowledged father of the modern mystery detective story. And he leaves us with a mystery. He leaves us not with a mystery, but a double-barreled mystery, because Poe not only we have not solved the mystery of how he died. We are up to about 25 theories as to what killed Poe. And, 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 and it has not been solved one little bit since the day he stopped drawing breath on October 7th, 1849. So he leaves us with a mystery, what, what killed him. And then he leaves us a, 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 the second mystery, which is Poe leaves Richmond in late September of 1849 from the moment he puts his foot on a steamer in a dock in Richmond on a boat heading for Baltimore for six days, a curtain comes down. They are missing days. We have no idea where Poe was and what happened to him during these six days until he is found insensible on the streets of Baltimore six days later. And nobody has ever stepped forward to say so much as I passed him on the street. Uh, I saw him at the rail of the steamer. I had a meal with him. Nothing. These six days are completely shielded from our view. So Poe leaves us with two mysteries. And then he dies under circumstances. He's lingering. He lingers for several days at a Baltimore hospital. 
He's feverish. He's out of his head. He's raving for, uh, for part of the time. So he dies under circumstances which would not be out of place in one of his own horror stories. So the father of the modern detective story and the modern horror story dies under circumstances which reflect his two greatest literary achievements. That, my friends, is the greatest literary stage exit of all time. That's almost like a press agent stepped in and said, Eddie, the best thing for you would be to die at 40 under circumstances that are right out of your own stories. Because that's what he does. And that's what happens. And that's why the discussion always seems to start with Poe's death. It always seems like, again, we've reversed the order. But another reason I reversed the order is, is this. One of the few things we know for absolute certainty about Poe's death is that he stopped drawing breath on October 7th, 1849 at a Baltimore hospital. That is beyond dispute. And then we also know that the next day, on October 8th, 1849, he was buried in a small Presbyterian cemetery in Baltimore on a very cold, windy, miserable, overcast day at a ceremony attended by very few people. He is lowered into the grave in a cheap casket with very little ceremony. And then the following day, October 9th, he's buried again. Because what happens on October 9th is somebody he thought was a friend wrote an obituary for a New York newspaper. Turns out this friend, who has the magnificently villainous name of Rufus Griswold, if that doesn't sound like a villain's name, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah. it sounds like it's right out of a Victorian melodrama. Somebody with a mustache <laughs> twirling. <laughs> Rufus Griswold. <laughs> Going to dispossess the orphans and the widow. <laughs> uh, Rufus Griswold has been nursing grudges against Poe for years. He's jealous of Poe, and he doesn't wait until the body is cold. When Poe dies, he writes an obituary that starts, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the essence of it is Edgar Allan Poe died the day before yesterday in Baltimore. Some will be surprised. Few will be grieved. And it went downhill from there. He accuses Poe of being immoral, of being a drunkard. He does damage to Poe's reputation, which has not been undone to this day. All the stereotypes about Poe sort of start here. And there is, is there a backlash to this? Yes, there's a backlash to this. Some of his friends, and he has friends, he has lots of friends, rally and fight, try to fight Griswold. But Griswold's not done. He's going to write more about Poe in the, the coming years, and he's going to add more and more charges to Poe, doing more and more damage to Poe's reputation. And the biggest backlash comes from the French, led by Baudelaire, uh, and his disciples, who idolized Poe. And uh, Baudelaire goes after Griswold. He calls Griswold a pedagogic vampire. <laughs> he famously asks in one defense of Poe about Griswold and his treatment of the deceased writer, are there not ordinances in your country that prevent dogs from running loose in your cemetery? He, <laughs> so he compares Griswold to a dog. He, so... Baudelaire and his disciples are really sort of riding to the rescue in some way, but they also do a lot of damage because they replace one stereotype with another. Because they like the idea of Poe's brilliance being a result of him being touched with some form of insanity. So they now start to encourage readers 
to confuse Poe with his unreliable narrators. Poe is the guy in the telltale heart who is contemplating killing and dismembering the old man with the pale blue eye. Poe is the guy in the raven talking to the raven. Poe is the guy in the cask of Amontillado luring the noble Fortunato to his death in the catacombs. All of this is, is nonsense. Poe was none of those things. He was a very careful writer. He was a very careful and exacting artist. He was healthy most of his life. He, uh, he was none of the stereotype. Where did but, the where did the opium stuff come from? All that stigmata, so to speak, is there was no evidence on, for that. There, well, first of all, let me say the debate. There is no proof at all that Poe ever took drugs at all, except what might have been prescribed to him uh, by a physician at the time. Yeah. Poe was later on. Uh, Griswold added the charge of drug addict to his other charges of Poe, and uh, even Poe's bitterest enemies. There's some really even greater enemies that he had than that even they said there's no evidence at all that Poe ever took drugs. So complete folly, but it latched on to the, the, the stereotype. And so we now the French adding their kind of misinterpretation of Poe. And then the 20th century takes over. And now we get the pop culture, uh, which is a double-edged sword for Poe. It, in, it keeps his fame going because you have all these movies and then later television shows and radio shows based on Poe's work. And this small group of stories define Poe for us. And there are the horror stories and the spooky poems. And these small group of stories, uh, this is what, what, what we think of Edgar Allan Poe. And so the caricature becomes entrenched in the 20th century. And what is the caricature? The caricature is this. I say Edgar Allan Poe, and you got an image. You've got an image in your mind. And first off, that's great, because that's fame. How many writers can you name to the average American, and they would get an image of what the writer looked like? Think about it. I mean, could, any, could the average American pick Herman Melville out of a police lineup? No. You know, would they know what Saul Bellow looked like? But everybody knows Edgar Allan Poe. He's on T-shirts. He's on, he's, he's, you know, he's, we make plushies on him. You can go to a Barnes & Noble or a BAM and you can see shelves of merchandise devoted to Poe. Yeah. Where are the shelves for Emerson? Where are the shelves for Thoreau? Why don't we have shelves devoted to them? But Poe, he's everywhere. And it's because of the one-two punch of the public school curriculum, because everybody gets Poe in the seventh grade and then on. So he's constantly being reintroduced. And then you have the pop culture. And Poe's everywhere in the pop culture. He's on the cover of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. He's not only yeah, on the yeah. cover, he's got the top center position. He's yeah. name-checked in songs by John Lennon and Bob Dylan. He's, stories have been given playful twists on everything from The Simpsons to SpongeBob SquarePants. He's summoned, as a, Pops. <laughs> he's, he's summoned as a character on South Park. And yep. the 21st century. Right now, we have a series starting in Netflix, the the House of Usher series. Which That's is next on my list. Characters and the Wednesday series, which seems to mention Poe all the time. And then we've had movies like The Pale Blue Eye and The Raven. Um, so Poe is the two most recognized American authors, without question, are Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. Hey, well, and, and I think there's also... A, 
I think there's also sort of an archetype to to his face in his in the you know his the, that main picture that's all over the place with the the curly sideburns and the curly locks. Uh, if you were to look at a silhouette of his face or his head, um, uh, Einstein's, Freud's, and Mark Twain's silhouettes, you probably couldn't tell them apart. They seem to be an archetype. Those four or five gentlemen, they have very similar looking hairstyles. They all have you know later on, like you said, Poe po didn't have the mustache or you know early on, but the, the iconographic photograph of him is with that big bushy mustache. Well, but he kind of like Einstein. He looks to me like Sigmund Freud, and they all of these four men look a lot alike together. Well, it's one more thing that has fed the stereotype. You see, there, there's only you know six or seven known photographs of Poe. Uh, they're called daguerreotypes, and almost all of them come from mm -hmm. the last two years of his life when he was starting to be sick. So. It, there are uh, portraits of Poe, watercolor portraits, which are done all of, we've got, you know, six or seven uh, photographs and then three or four um, uh, portraits of Poe, which were done in his lifetime. So we have, you know, maybe 10 or 11 images of Poe. That's it. That's all we know of what Poe looked like. And they all come from 1843 to 1849, the last six years of his life. Mm -hmm. And the majority of them are the last two years. The majority of the photographic evidence comes the last two years. When he is sick, when he is starting to, when he when he's looking a little puffy, when he is looking more and more, and he grows the mustache. But in 1843, there's a watercolor of a very handsome man with sideburns and no mustache, and he looks like a leading man. It's Poe. You'd never recognize him. If you passed him on the streets of Philadelphia at that time, you would never recognize it as the Edgar Allan Poe we know today. But those photographs from the end, have reinforced the idea of a sickly, sallow guy. This is the stereotype. A guy who's sickly, pale-skinned, sunken eyes, hunched shoulders, sitting up in an attic somewhere, hunched over a manuscript, surrounded by cobwebs and dust, a raven perched on his shoulder, a red-eyed black cat prowling amongst the dust, while he holds a quill pen and spins out his tales of terror in fever dreams fueled by drugs and possibly alcohol and a bottle of cognac within hand's reach. And guys, none of that's true. Not any a part of that is true. Not one part of that is who Edgar Allan Poe actually was and how he worked. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Uh, it's also the reasons I, re I reversed the subtitle, made it the death and life of Edgar Allan Poe, because this guy keeps getting buried. He keeps, he's buried for real. You know, in 1875, they dug him up and buried him again. What? In 1875, they finally, Baltimore was thinking, well, maybe this Edgar Allan Poe was somebody we should have been paying more attention to. So they decided to put a big monument over his grave. Problem was, in the little part of the, the cemetery where they had buried him, there wasn't room for a monument. So they had to move him. So they dug him up <laughs> and buried him again. And then, they put, and then they put this monument over him. And then he gets buried in the, the 20th century under all this myth and misinformation. And he keeps getting buried. But what's the one thing we really do know from Edgar Allan Poe's short story? It's this. Nothing ever stays buried in an Edgar Allan Poe short story. And Poe ain't going to stay buried. He's going to come zooming out of the grave triumphant. He is going to become the best known, best read American writer, and he's going to outlast 
and outshine all of those writers who are supposed to outlast and outshine him. He has the best afterlife of any author. Yes, he's defined. It's those small group of stories that have done it. And that's what his is. His, again, it's a double-edged sword because they have made his fame and they continue to make his fame. But it is a stereotype. It sounds like, Gris, it sounds like Griswold's campaign against Poe did exactly the opposite. You're <laughs> absolutely right. It backfired. It turned yeah. him into a villain. It turned him into one of literary, literary history's great villains. That's a very shrewd point, Jay. That's exactly right. And it also made Poe seem more romantic by giving him all of this stuff. Like, mm. oh, you know, I, I don't want to minimize Poe's faults. But I want one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to give the, the, the real artist. You see, one of the reasons I thought that our concept of Poe had to be wrong was this. I was a journalist for 43 years. And during those 43 years, I got to interview almost every leading person who created horror in some way. Writers like Stephen King and Anne Rice and Clive Barker and Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson and Ray and, and, and Robert Block. Directors like Wes Craven and uh, John Carpenter and actors like Vincent Price and Robert England. And there's one thing that they all have in common. They all, every single one of them had a great sense of humor. Every single one. And when I pointed this out to Stephen King, he said, well, of course, it's standard issue for anybody who does hard to have a great sense of humor because you'd go crazy if you didn't have a great sense of humor and you did this. You need it to keep yourself balanced, to keep yourself centered. And horror writers tend to be very, very funny people. Well, if that was true, if that was true of all these people, then doesn't it follow that Poe must have had a great sense of humor? Yeah. And it turns definitely. out, guess what? He did. Would it surprise you to know that Poe wrote as much humor as he did horror? We just don't read that. the humor today. But he wrote a lot of hoaxes, satires, humorous pieces. He was a very witty guy. He was witty, charming. He was a Southern gentleman. He was raised to be a Southern aristocrat. So we don't think of Poe as a comedy writer. But he had a great sense. Of, even the horror stories are very funny. There are aspects of the horror story. Take a story like Cast of Amontillado which is basically, it's a very grim story. It's a story about planned death and one person luring another person to his death based on revenge. And yet, it's very funny in places because the, the narrator, Montresor, has planned to kill Fortunato by using his own vanities against him. And he lures him into the catacombs under Montresor's house where the family's, uh, his family's been buried over the years. All because uh, he's purported to have bought a cask of Amontillado wine and he wants his opinion on it. And Fortunato is sick. He keeps coughing. And Montresor is playing with him like, like with a mouse. He keeps saying, no, 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 let's go back. You're, 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 you're sick and I can't be responsible. You're, you will be ill. And you're a man to be missed. You're an important man. And Fortunato keeps saying, no, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. We must go on. And he keeps giving him a chance to go back. And he's luring him to his death at the same time. And it finally reaches a point where Fortunato has a coughing fit. And he can't stop coughing. 
And Montresor says, enough, we must go back. Your health is precious. We must go back. And Fortunato says, enough, enough. It is nothing. It is a mere cough. I shall not die of a cough. And Poe lets that linger in the air just long enough. And then he has Montresor say one word. True. You won't die of a cough. You're about to die under the most horrible circumstances. He's going to be called <laughs> up in, 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 in the family crypt. That's a laugh line. And Poe's letting you in on the joke. And this is what I mean. Poe had a great sense of humor. And we, it's, it's, we, we don't attribute it to him. But this is the real guy who wrote all those stories. This is why he was so great at it. He was great at it not because he was insane. He was great at it because he was in total control of his art. And he was a very careful writer. Was alcohol a problem for Edgar Allan Poe? Yes, but it probably was not the problem you think it is. The record is very clear. From the earliest times that he takes a drink, which was when he was a student at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, every evidence right on to the end of his life is consistent. It took very little alcohol to get Edgar Allan Poe roaring drunk. One drink, and it had been like he'd been drinking for hours. And Poe was not the type to sip or savor a drink. That's how I am. I, just, I don't drink that much, but that's the same. That's well, it. Poe was allergic to it. Poe threw it back, and then he was not only roaring drunk, it took him days to get over it. It wasn't just the case of a simple morning hangover for Poe. It so devastated his system, it took him days to get to being bedridden to get over this. But between that... There are these very long periods of sobriety, you know, 12, 14 months when he doesn't touch alcohol. Poe's problem was he always picked the wrong time to drink. He was always the time when it was going to do his reputation the most damage. And it was easy for people to label him an alcoholic, this guy who was perpetually drunk. But I'll submit this to you. Now, when I was writing the book, I would run across people and I would, they would ask me what I was doing. And I would say I was writing a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. And they would get this almost beatific look on their face. And they would say something like, oh. <laughs> I'm <Edgar> sorry. Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe. No, no, no. Quite the opposite. They would say, Edgar Allan Poe. I love Edgar Allan Poe. And my lips could almost move with what was going to happen next. They'd say, I've read everything he's written. And I think, and I'd never say it, I'd never challenge it, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, you yeah. haven't. You <laughs> haven't even begun to read everything he wrote. What, the first attempt to, to really put all of Edgar Allan Poe's writing together, a collected edition, was done in the early 1900s. When it was done, the collected writings of Edgar Allan Poe, a man who only lived to be 40, filled 17 volumes. Wow. And we have discovered more since. And that much of it is horror. That much of it. And yet it's that much that's defined him. Poe was yeah. many kinds of writers. In Poe's lifetime, he wasn't even best known as the author of spooky short stories. He was known, he wasn't even best known as a poet. He was primarily known as a literary critic. And a very good one, a very exacting one, and a very feared one. Poe was such an exacting literary critic that his nickname was the Tomahawk Man. He was, <laughs> he was so exact, but he was good. He was really good. The people he praised 
People like Washington Irving and Nathaniel Hawthorne deserve to be remembered. And the people he went after, we have forgotten. And he was he was really well ahead of his time as a writer and as a critic. He also was calling for, in his writing as a critic, an American voice. He calls for American literature to break the bonds of Europe. He knew we would never really truly develop a American literature until we got off our knees and stopped bowing down under the long shadow of Europe in general and England in particular. So he calls for a distinct American voice. He's in some ways our John the Baptist from a literary standpoint out there calling for, for something. And, you know, the person who's going to answer the call is Mark Twain. It is a few years later, Twain comes along and he writes in the vernacular. He writes a whole entire book where it's narrated by an illiterate 14-year-old boy. And he really sets American literature free. And that's what Poe is kind of calling for in his, in his literary. So Poe is a great literary critic. And our century has reversed the order. We know him first as the author of short stories of horror and mystery, secondarily as a poet, and third, if you know it all, at all, as a literary critic. And that doesn't even begin to calculate uh, the amount of writing Poe did and the various amount of writing. He got from his mother a tremendous work ethic and a tremendous versatility. He inherited that from Eliza Poe, and he was tremendously productive and tremendously versatile as a writer. He would be shocked. He would be stunned to learn that we have made of him sort of our grandfather of God, you know? And if you had said to <clears> Poe, <throat> you're, you're our writer, he wouldn't even know what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. because, you know, no writer who sort of advanced horror in the uh, the 1800s. And if you were going to do like a Mount Rushmore of those writers, it would probably start with Mary Shelley, who precedes Poe, and has a tremendous influence on both horror and science fiction. So, you know, Mary Shelley with Frankenstein, she's sort of the first one. And then there's Poe. And then there's Robert Louis Stevenson, who gives us Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then finally, at the end of the century, there's Bram Stoker, who gives us Dracula. That's kind of the Mount Rushmore of the, the, the horror. Titans. Where, where's Lovecraft? He's in there somewhere. Isn't he? Well, he doesn't come into the next century, though. Oh, OK. You know, we're talking about the, the, the 19th century right now. But yeah. Lovecraft is a disciple of Poe. Lovecraft will, 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 it will tell you, it would have told you that Poe was his, was his hero. And so, this, uh, yeah, any, and, any, none, one of them would have known what, what you would have meant if you could call them a horror writer. They would have said, oh, you mean I write gothic stories? Yes. Well, maybe. Some days I do. You know, Back then, writers didn't have to specialize. They didn't have to be branded like the way they are today. Today, that's a 20th century American conceit, where we've taken a writer and we say, well, Stephen King is a horror writer, you know, and, and, and Raymond Chandler is a mystery writer. And it's like, well, what kind of writer are you? What do you have to pick? Do you have to choose? There are types. So, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson would have said, well, today I'm writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or The Body Snatcher, but tomorrow I'm writing Treasure Island. And the next day I'm writing A Child's Garden of Verses. And the next day I'm writing essays. They would have not seen like they would have had to have been defined by that. But we've defined Poe by that small group of stories. And one reason is he was good at it. <laughs> he was really <laughs> good at it. So better at any than anybody who was doing it at the time. And the other stuff he wrote, is it pretty accessible now? I mean, how would you look for it? Because it seems like a lot of it just pops up as the horror stuff. I mean, how would you dig for some of that kind of stuff? 
Well, you know, there are always collected uh, editions of Poe. There's a wonderful book called The Portable Poe, which is very, it's always huh. in print. Uh, Check that out. Directed by, uh, edited by J. Gerald Kennedy. And it's got uh, all uh, examples of all different types of writing from different genres that he wrote it. It's got letters. It's got essays. It's got humorous pieces. It's got mystery stories. It's got horror stories. Uh, it's got it's got poetry. It's got a little bit of everything in there. So um, there are some collections out there, and I would start with the Portable Poe, which I think is a is a wonderful collection. <laughs> is that the, the Penguin one? The Penguin this, Classic. That's right. The, that's right. It's the Penguin okay. Classic, and it, it 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 it's it's an excellent uh oh uh, you know uh, example of of just how how much Poe wrote and how he was how good he was at so many different things. Did you ever see that uh, what, Ma uh, American Masters PBS Buried Alive with Dennis O'Hare? Did mm -hmm. you get to see that one? That was really good. I, that's a good one to watch around this time, like every year kind of thing. It was pretty good. It's okay. I, 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 I the only what I don't. There were three major attempts to do documentaries on Poe. Uh, the first one was by American Masters back in the nineties, okay. and then there was one that was done on the A and E biography series. And then there was Buried Alive, second attempt by, by it. The only problem I have with all three of those is they sort of give lip service to the complete writer and the real writer. And then they play to the stereotype and they go right yeah. back to the stereotype and say, you know, oh, but he was this, you know, gloomy, doomed man. And who was, you know, and, you know, some of that's true. Part of that, the stereotype, part of the stereotype is true because aspects of Post's personality were like that. He dressed in black. He cut a romantic figure. His hero was Lord Byron, um, you know, and something in him resonated to, you know, the, the creaking door and the uneasy coffin lid. Something in him resonated to those things and drew him to write those things. But that's only part of who he was. It's like we, we don't have any trouble accepting Stephen King as a guy who is a, 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 a devoted family man a guy who likes to go to baseball games and go root for the Boston Red Sox. Um, we'd have no problem accepting Stephen King as kind of a down-to-earth guy who loves his dog and at the same time is our reigning master of the horror story. But with Poe, I think a lot of people don't want to accept that there were all these other aspects to his personality. And I think one of the reasons is I, I think people are a little afraid of losing the fun Poe. And I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's even remotely possible. I, I'll, I'll give you another example of this. If you start, go back to like 1960, at the dawn of that amazing decade, when everything and the culture seemed to be turned inside out and upside down, and everybody started questioning their place in the world and the culture and uh, do your own thing and the, the dawn of liberation movements. And it's an amazing decade. It really is. And it, it's such a re response to the conformity of the 1950s. If you start at that decade, the two best known American authors around the world are clearly Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. They are the most recognized. They're the, be the best read. And both of their reputations at that point are solidly grounded in stereotypes. For Twain, he is the guy in white, white suit, white hair, white mustache, cigar in hand, dispensing witticisms. He's our grandfatherly man of letters. He's our wit. He is our author of family classics. And 
that's part of that's true. Part of that is that is who Mark Twain was. But a big part of his writings were being suppressed at that time by his one surviving daughter, Clara, who was absolutely convinced that if these writings ever came out, they would destroy his reputation because they were critical of religion. They were critical of politics. They were critical of what he called the damned human race. But Clara dies in the early 1960s, and these writings start to be published. And what happens? It doesn't destroy Twain's reputation. It enlarges it. Twain grows larger throughout the 1960s, and we start to see him as a fierce social critic, a man who had a lot to say on a lot of different subjects, and we better listen to him. So Twain... But we never lose the fun Twain. It's not like we lost that other Twain because we just accepted that he was more than that. Poe comes out of the 1960s, same guy he went in. He's just, he's the, the, the guy who gave us the, the mystery story and the horror story. And that reputation is still pretty much the same today. It hasn't changed. But if we enlarge our view of, of Twain, of Poe, we will understand why he was so good at writing those horror stories we love. Just like by understanding Stephen King and knowing that there's a real person behind those stories. That's the real writer. The real writer is not the stereotype with Poe. And you have to accept, it's like Robert Block told me, you know, and Robert Block was the author of Psycho. He's the creator of Norman Bates. And in his teenage years, Robert Block was a pen pal with H.P. Lovecraft. So he's a student of Poe, a friend of Lovecraft, and a master of horror in his own right. And Robert Block told me, the problem is nobody thinks of Edgar Allan Poe as somebody whose mother-in-law called him Eddie. And the first time you accept that, you are on the road to accepting the real writer. Once you accept that, you are on the road to destroying the stereotype and the funhouse mirror <coughs> reflection that we've made of Edgar Allan Poe. So, you know, was he great at this stuff? Yeah, but the reason he was great was not because he was the stereotype, not because he was tinged with insanity. It's because he was a very, very careful writer and a very, very exacting craftsman. And we, do, we don't do him any justice if we just say, oh, he was good at this because he was tinged with madness. That undercuts his genius. <laughs> what what how did you get to meet so many cool authors was it from rewriting your books and like interviews or just you know them well, i mean i mean when some of it was was an interest so i would request these interviews i mean when somebody would say you know who do you want to interview but there was a lot of opportunity uh, as a uh, i spent most of my 43 years in journalism working for newspapers <clears> and most <throat> of those years working for newspapers as a a tv and film critic cool so this put me on the path of uh, interviewing an awful lot of people who did this sort of thing. And awesome. uh, so, you know, in the, in the 1980s, I, and into the early nineties, I had four opportunities to interview Vincent Price, for instance, you know, who wow. loved Poe and gave me some great insights into Poe. Nice. Um, you know, so, um, and I would always take advantage of it. If you know, if somebody had a new book coming out, if there was somebody like Dean Koontz or Clive Barker had a new book, I would, I would request the interview. And that was back in the day when they would put these people on book tours and they would come to your city and you would, could request an interview with them. So um, 
I and then you know I, I've written several books, which you know, I, for lack of a better word, fall on the spooky side of the street. You know, one of my books is on uh, the Night Stalker series with Darren McGavin as Carl Kolshak. One of my books is on Dracula. Uh, I edited three volumes of works by Richard Matheson, who became a pretty close friend. So um, for a while, I was working on a book with Ray Bradbury. Uh, nice. So. You know, I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate in the fact that um, my paths have crossed with so many of these, yeah. these people. That's a groovy rap sheet. I'm a very, very lucky. I still person. have that Robert Bach uh, psycho like hardcover. It has like three of them in it. I need to read it. It's, it seems like it gets really creepy. I know I was just seeing Tarantino was saying that. Oh, great. He loves Psycho 2. I thought about digging. I have that. Michael too is a very good movie. Tom Holland really did a nice job with that. I'm I'm a big fan of Psycho too as well. I want to watch uh, that this time yeah. of year for yeah. sure. I think that's got you know. I think a lot of people. I mean, you know, nothing's going to equal the, the the brilliance and the originality of the first movie. Uh, but Psycho two is a solid effort. Really, really wonderful, solid effort. I'd like to see it again. Do, do, I, sure. do either of you guys know what they used for the blood in the uh, in the original Psycho um, murder scene? Was it was it Hershey syrup? Hershey's chocolate syrup. Yeah, that was the, that was the go to thing for blood in westerns and everything because it photographed right in black. And yeah, it, it has the right consistency on black and white. You can't tell because there's, yeah. there's no color to it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I definitely want to talk about Poe some more, but on the Kolchak thing, that's just such a, a great subject that I'm surprised they haven't tried to reboot that on some level. I guess uh, X Files is kind of maybe an attempt, sort of. But that's just such a great series. And I know there's been a lot of comics and cool things like that with it uh, lately. Uh, what what was that book about? Just like the history of it? or Yeah. You know, what, what happened was um, I, my first book was published in 1982. So, you know, I'm Jurassic. I, I, I go back pretty far. You know, my <laughs> earliest writing, they, they use Carbon 14 to date my earliest writing. So, um <laughs> So my first book was published in 82. It was a slice of theater history, actually. And at that point, people said, like, you know, what, what's going to be your next book? And I would tell anybody I was going to write the history of my favorite television series of all time, which is The Twilight Zone. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to write a history of The Twilight Zone. And I did. I was living in East Tennessee at the time. I was living and working in East Tennessee, which is not the best place in the world to use as a base of operations for interviewing and, and building research on the Twilight Zone. But I was young and foolish and, you know, full of confidence. And why not me? Why not? It's my favorite show. Why not? So I did enough interviews to fool myself into thinking I would write that book. Um, two of the actors who were at the theater that I had, had written about in my first book, uh, Fritz Weaver and Claude Aikens, uh, had gotten their start at that theater. And then th they both were in two episodes each of the Twilight Zone. So I had, you know, two interviews. And then one day Donna Douglas, who played Ellie Mae Clampett on the Beverly Hillbillies, came to town to shoot a commercial. And I ran down to the filming site and she was in a classic Twilight Zone episode, Eye of the Beholder. And um, so I was doing just enough interviews. And then I walked into a bookstore in 1982. And there it was. Mark Scott Secrees, the Twilight Zone companion. And I bought that book, took it home, and I couldn't even be pissed off about it because Mark had done such a great job uh, in documenting the history of the Twilight Zone. It was a it was a great book. It really was. It in many ways set the standards for books 
about TV series. And um, I had to shift my focus. So I shifted it to another favorite series, which was Columbo. And I did a history of the Columbo series. And I worked on it for about five years. That was published in 1989. It was called The Columbo File. And I did, uh, you know, interviewed everybody from Peter Falk on down to the, the people, who the guys who created it, all the guest, uh, guest stars and things like that. And my goal was to write as good a book on Columbo as Mark Scott Sacree had written on The Twilight Zone. Um, and then that book was published and I was just about to make a deal on the next book. And this was like eight, 1989. And a small publisher in New York called me and said that, he said, I've read your Columbo book and I really loved it. And I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And he said, have you ever thought about writing a similar book about the Night Stalker? And I said, I love the Night Stalker. I became a journalist because of Carl Kolschak. Carl Kolschak was my hero. I was 15 years old when the first oh. movie, The Night Stalker, aired. And I said, I love the Night Stalker. I love Carl Kolschak. I said, but I didn't think there would be a publisher crazy enough to publish a book like that. And he said, well, I'm crazy enough to publish a book like that. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, if I can get the creator of the character, Jeff Rice, Darren McGavin, Dan Curtis, who produced the original movie, and Richard Matheson, who did the screenplay for the original movie, if I can get those four people to say yes, I'll write the book and then I'll be off to the races. Well, all four of them signed on right away for it. And that book was published in 1991 as Night Stalking. And uh, a couple years later, another small publisher got the rights to do Kolchak fiction from Jeff Rice, the creator, because Jeff had owned the literary rights to the character. And uh, Jeff wasn't interested at that moment of writing what would have been the third Kolchak. He wrote the original two Kolchak novels, The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler. And uh, the publisher said, well, you know, would you let somebody else write him? He said, yes, I'd let Mark write because I like what he did with the nonfiction book. So my next uh, Kolchak book was actually a novel called Grave Secrets. Cool. Which was a horror novel featuring Carl Kolchak 20 years later. It was the first original Kolchak fiction in 20 years when that was published in 94. Then in 97, I published uh, a, a revised edition of the Night, Stalk Night Stalking as the Night Stalker Companion. And then in the early 2000s, I published a, a collection of Richard Matheson's Kolchak scripts that had the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler and the unfilmed third movie, what was going to be the third movie, The Night Killers. Um, so, and then I've written Kolchak uh, comic book scripts, short stories, and novellas. <laughs> I think I've written just about anything you can write as far as Kolchak. I've, I've spent an awful lot of time in Carl Kolchak's company over the years. <laughs> and it's a big part of the, the resume. But I was always very grateful to Carl Kolschak for a lot of things. First off, because like I said, I became a journalist because he was my hero and my role model. I, uh, I started uh, college in September of 1974 at George Washington University, which is located just a few blocks away from the White House and Washington, D.C. And uh, the same month that I started uh, my work towards a journalism degree at George Washington, was the same month on Friday the 13th. Today is Friday the 13th. Yeah. Friday the 13th, September 1974, Kolshak the Night Stalker premiered as a series. So 
you know, it was just like perfect. You know, I'd seen the two movies, other two movies, and just as I was starting my work towards a journalism degree, here comes the series that lasted 20 episodes, one season in 1974-75. Now, what you have to know is that in September of 1974, that was just weeks after Richard Nixon had resigned the presidency due to the Watergate scandal. Yeah. Oh, I was surrounded by students who wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. You know, they wanted to be, you know, this was why journalism, I wanted to be Carl Kolschak. You know, from the beginning, he was my role model as to what a real journalist was, was a real reporter was. And I have since met a lot of other journalists who have said the same thing. That uh, So then, then I'm grateful to, to, to Carl again, because in 1989, when the, the Colombo book was published, the next book was going to be another mystery book, another to mystery topic. If I had done that book, it might have set me forever as kind of a mystery guy, more of a mystery guy than anything else. But Kolchak pushed me back into the thing that I first love, which was the horror stuff. And it gave me enough cred to then go do stuff like horror fiction and the Dracula book and things like that. And then in uh, 2017, I got a chance to do my Twilight Zone book. I waited all those years and I finally got my Twilight Zone book which was published in 2017. It's called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. It's a tribute to the parables and, uh, and the, and the mor morality lessons of the Twilight Zone. And um, I finally got my Twilight Zone book, but I wouldn't have gotten the Twilight Zone book if Carl Kolschak hadn't pushed me back in that right direction. And that created a path that led to the Twilight Zone book in 2017. So you never know how life's going to work out. You never know how this is going to go. And, you know, you think you're the captain of your ship. You think you're making all the decisions. <laughs> and then you step back and you see fate pushed you. Synchronicity. In certain yeah. places where you were meant to be at certain times. And again, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for that, uh, I, I was pushed back into the direction which gave me finally my Twilight Zone book. And if it hadn't been for the Twilight Zone book, I would, because that was published by St. Martin in 2017, I wouldn't have then done the Poe book because that was done by St. Martin's. And it was my follow-up book for them. So cool. I owe Carl Kolchak a lot. And, and what I was going to ask, when it comes to Kolchak, it's been a while since I've watched it, but what was some of the things in it? Was it paranormal phenomenon that was actually real? Or I'm trying to remember. It's been a while it, since the, I've seen it. The first movie uh, aired in January of 1972. And the commercials for it began uh, in, in, in October of 71 abc's ad campaign for this movie was just spectacular but you couldn't tell from the commercials whether you knew it was about a vampire but you didn't know whether it was a real vampire or just a serial killer who thought he was a vampire you didn't know until you actually saw the movie how it was going to play out and they didn't cop out it's a real vampire and it's an amazing movie it's a movie that still holds up to this day because one of the great things about the night stalker is it's set in Las Vegas. It's not only set in an American town, it's set in the American town. It's Sin City, baby. And it's so logical. <laughs> I mean, if you were a vampire, where would you go? How about to a city that's on your schedule, that's up all night, and it's full of transients, full of people who come and go, will never be missed? For a vampire, Las Vegas is a smorgasbord. It's a place where it's you'll you fit in, uh, nobody will notice you. It's 
it's it's a great place to be to 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 be a predator. And so the Night Stalker was such an original idea, an original concept. They then did a second movie set in Seattle called The Night Strangler. Uh, and then the series was 20 episodes. Each, was, was, there was a monster of the week. It was a vampire, a zombie, an Aztec mummy, a witch, uh, a werewolf, alien. You know. So every week, the paranormal threat was different, but it was real. It was it was very much real. So that was Shack, the two movies and the 20 episodes. And when I published the book in 91, that's all there had been. That's all there was. And then the two novels that Jeff wrote, that Jeff Rice wrote, that was pretty much the entire Shack universe. But one thing happened between the two versions of the of the book, the 91 version, 97 version, is that the X-Files premiered. Yes. And Chris Carter who created the X-Files, would tell anybody who would listen to him, to this day we will say the same thing, that the reason he created the X-Files was because as a kid, the Night Stalker had scared the piss out of him. So <laughs> a whole generation, everybody who goes on to create horror in the 90s, you have to sort of wait. The Night Stalker is 72, and then like 20 years later, just like clockwork, all this, all these great horror people start to, to who were influenced by the movie, who were influenced by the, this film. So you get things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The X Files, Supernatural, Grimm. All these things are uh, by people who acknowledge that the Night Stalker and the Carl Kolschak character had this enormous influence on them. So, hey, uh, Mark, you ever heard of a guy named Doctor Richard Allen Miller? That he he says he has a connection to X Files that they based it on him and stuff. He's like a scientist, and he goes around. No, and he's been on, uh, Richard Allen Miller, but he was on, and somehow he has some connection to X Files. That's weird, but I don't know if it's true or not. But I know he's been on a lot of shows saying it on the circuit and stuff. Well, but uh, I was just curious if you'd heard of him. No, I don't know if it's no. true or not, but. No. For all I know, no telling. <laughs> but, but anyway, the Kolchak thing's really cool, and I knew it had influenced X Files and everything. I'm surprised they haven't tried to reboot Kolchak. Give they it did. time. They did. Two thousand five. There was, was a two thousand. There was a two thousand five uh, series, The Night Stalker. Uh, Stuart Townsend as Carl Kolchak. They made it much younger. Yeah. They gave it sort of a X Files type of mythology. Before. It did not last long. It only lasted a few weeks, like eight weeks on ABC in 2005. Oh, okay. Uh, I see so there it. was an attempt. There, there was an attempt to revive it. Um, it was somewhat misguided. There was a lot of uh, micromanaging by ABC that ruined the whole idea of how to, to do it correctly. And uh, it was quickly and deservedly canceled. But Kolchak has gone on in comic books and short stories Moonstone, a Chicago operation, had got the rights from Jeff Rice in the early 2000s to do original stories. And they have now done dozens upon dozens of new Kolshak stories uh, over the years. So uh, Kolshak goes on. You know, he, he has this amazing influence. The original movie, though, I mean, you cannot underestimate its influence because the original movie... Um, I used to show it. I did a, a, a class, a film appreciation class at Kent State University for 10 years. And uh, I would show the Night Stalker. When we got to the 70s, I would show the Night Stalker. And not one of my students had ever heard of it. I would say the Night Stalker, Carl Kolschak, and it was blank stairs. 
even a lot of these students who said, you know, oh, we've seen everything. We've seen all the horror stuff that's out there, all the vampire stuff. And I'd say Night Stalker. And it's, what? And I'd say, this is the best known, unknown vampire story of all time. And what I meant by that was they didn't know it. But they had knew all the things that it influenced. They they said they knew and had seen all this other stuff that had been influenced by Night Stalker. But when Night Stalker aired, it got a it set the the ratings record for a TV movie when it aired in 1972. It got a 33.4 rating. Uh, now, back then, Nielsen broke down ratings by what was called a rating and a share. The rating was the percentage of total TV households because advertisers sold based on households, who's in the household. So they wanted a household rating. So the the 33.4 rating is much higher than one third of the country was watching this movie because there's most households have more than one person in it, right? So ergo, way more than one third of the country was watching this movie. And then there's the share. The share is what was the percentage of the audience actually watching television, the total audience watching television at that time that was watching your show? Because not everybody's watching television at the same time, right? You know, you might be out, you might be bowling, you might be out for dinner. Who knows? That number, the Night Stalker got a 54 share, which means more than one out of two people watching television during the time that it aired was watching the Night Stalker. Cool. And the reason it was so good was because the Night Stalker was very sly. It blended like three very distinct forms, which shouldn't have gone together. One was a traditional horror story. Because at the base, the Night Stalker was a traditional Dracula horror story. It's about a vampire invading a major city. Well, that's Dracula. So it's at its core, it's a very old-fashioned horror story. And it owes a lot to Bram Stoker. Secondarily... It works as a newspaper comedy because the conceit is that the hero is a newspaper man, a hard-charging newspaper man who always has got a wisecrack for every occasion, this hard-charging guy who's always got his hat ready to go on and bolt out the door and is always having arguments with his editor. And this, You see this in every 1930s newspaper movie. It's always a reporter played by Clark Gable or Frederick March. And he's always, you know, cut the gab and get me sweetheart, get me rewrite sweetheart type of guy, you know? And so uh, this was also kind of a throwback. It was kind of a throwback to this, this kind of earlier uh, hard charging newspaper comedy type of thing that was very popular in the 1930s. And then third, it was almost like a film noir. It was almost because Kolchak operated like a detective and Darren McGavin who played the part, had played uh, Mike Hammer in the, the, the syndicated Mickey Spillane series in the 50s, and then he played the lead detective character in a series called The Outsider. He'd been known for playing this kind of uh, hard-charging detective type. And The Night Stalker works as sort of a film noir mystery, too. The only thing is that the mystery is supernatural. The, the killer is a, is a vampire, and the mystery is supernatural. Otherwise, all the story steps are almost like film noir cinema verite type of thing. So you take these three things and you put it together. And those three things should not go together, but they do. They go together brilliantly in that original movie. And it meant that you didn't have to be a horror fan to love this movie. You, There were a lot of points of access to this movie. You could be like, uh, you loved old 
uh, newspaper movies, you or you loved uh, detective stories. It works on all three levels. Works brilliantly on all three levels. So it's a it's a very fly piece of entertainment. It really is. Definitely. And uh, what what was some of the the Dracula book? Was it just like the history of Dracula and Bram Stoker and things like that? Or did you get? It's very much Taylor? about the, yeah. It's a very much about the uh, uh, the book and everything that the book spawned. Uh, it, it it is it, it was part of a series. There was a company called Continuum, and they had done a book called the the bedside bathtub and armchair companion to Agatha Christie, and it became their best selling title in the history of the the of, of this of this publisher. So they decided, well, we'll try it again. So they did a second book called the bedside bathtub and armchair companion to Sherlock Holmes, and that was a big hit for them. So then they decided to franchise it out and do various topics, very popular topics, and they came to me and said, would you like to write the bedside bathtub and armchair companion to dracula and i said yeah i'd love to do that and it gave me a chance to really dig cool. deep into the dracula research i got into the rosenbach museum in philadelphia and spent several days with all of Bram stoker's uh notes that he uh, that all of stoker's dracula notes are at the rosenbach and they really tell the tale of how stoker wrote that book that amazing book and uh so it, so the book is about it is about stoker it is about uh, the writing of the book and, and, and everything that went into that amazing book. And then everything that the book spawned, the movies, the TV uh, adaptations and all of that. So, How heavily was the Vlad the Impaler thing? Did you find any Vlad the Impaler secrets or anything like that? Did you get into that a lot? No, or the, just the, the main bit? thing that's clear is, you know, this is always a debate among uh, Dracula fans and scholars. It's clear that Bram Stoker knew extremely little about Vlad the Impaler. In oh, fact, okay. um, it's probably true he didn't even know that um, that that his name was Vlad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, Stoker never went to Transylvania. He never actually stepped foot uh, on Transylvania soil. He once said, well, a tree is a tree, and you know, you can describe it. He did all of his research at the British Museum. And uh, he got most of his Transylvania stuff out of a book uh, about a travel book about Transylvania. And one of the things he got out of that book, you know, a lot of nonsense worked into it, but it's become part of the established lore. Well, one of the books he got told him that uh, the, the word Nosferatu meant undead. You know, in fact, the word doesn't exist. The word Nosferatu has never been found in any language. It, 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 if, if, you know, somebody wants to make their reputation, find the derivation for Nosferatu. Uh, because as a word, it does not exist in Romanian. It does not exist in Greek. It does not exist in Latin. It does not exist in Russian. And Stoker bought this. He's, he's, he's had Van Helsing tell the other vampire fighters that we are dealing with Nosferatu, the undead. And indeed, that word does not really exist. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, the closest we've got to it is there's a Greek word, nosphoros. And okay. nosphoros means play carrier. Uh, if you look at the interpretation of the character in the movie Nosferatu in 1922, it is metaphorically a play carrier. That would be very fitting if that was where the word come, came from. It's a good guess that it comes from nosphoros. 
But um, Stoker knew that there was a a warlord uh, who ruled not Transylvania, but Wallachia. And he knew that there was a warlord that used the name Dracula and fought the Turks. If he knew much more than that, uh, I would be surprised. Now, that does work in and shape the character of Dracula. If you want to say that it was based on Vlad the Impaler, that seems pretty a pretty strong claim. Um, But the fact that he does use that, he does have, you know, uh, he does have Dracula boast about fighting the Turks and driving him back, driving back the Turks and the proud voivode line, meaning warlord. Uh, So he does borrow things from the character of Vlad the Impaler, but he knew very little about Vlad. And what he did know came from German and Russian pamphlets, which depicted Vlad as a bloodthirsty uh, you know, tyrant. The woodcutting picture. Right, exactly. That, yeah. That's what, what he would have gotten the propaganda version of Vlad the Impaler, not the homegrown uh, version of Vlad the Impaler <laughs> in which he is a national hero in yes. Romania. So uh, st- what's even if Stoker knew anything, he would have been getting a very skewed account uh, of Vlad. But he does get important things from Vlad, not the least of which is the name. I mean... You cannot undercut, because remember, Stoker was going to title the book uh, The Undead, or Count Undead, at one point. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Will he still be reading this book? He not only gets the name of his vampire uh, from Vlad, he gets the title of his book. And the title is amazing. I mean, Dracula. My goodness, that sounds like a whip crack coming through history, Dracula. <laughs> My, that sound is, Stoker yeah. was a man of the theater. You know, why does he set the story in Transylvania when Vlad didn't rule Transylvania? The name, he loved the name. How much better does Transylvania sound? It sounds mysterious. It sounds, yeah. you know, today, Transylvania, you sound Transylvania and you've got this whole idea of moats and castles and ruined landscapes and dead trees. And Transylvania means the land beyond the forest. That's the literal translation. And most of Transylvania looks like the opening of the Sound of Music. It's a beautiful, beautiful Carpathian mountains. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and most people think of it as like the monsters now because. That's the Transylvania of our imagination, and it's the Transylvania that Bram Stoker gave. And he did a lot of research, though, but that's the amazing thing about that book. It's just how much research Stoker did Um, to the point that you pretty much can take the same path that Jonathan Harker takes to the castle. You know, eat the same food, the same timetable, stay in the same villages. He did all that research about, you know, how you would travel. Right onto the Borgo Pass. And yeah, there's a Borgo Pass right where he says it is. There's no castle beyond that because Dracula's castle would have been way to the south in what in current day Romania. But there's a, you know, the fictional castle is located near the Borgo Pass. So, it, it, you know, it, it is, a, he does get important things from Vlad. No question. Definitely. But how much he actually knew of Vlad and Vlad's history, probably very little. Seemed like he did it kind of nonchalantly, like not with much, like a, not much care, just kind of. Ooh. I think when he hit that name, when he did, he was doing his research, and he saw that there was a warlord named Dracula. He knew he had it. He knew he had the title of his character and the, the title of his book. Because again, Stoker in his lifetime, 
like Poe was not best known in his lifetime as the spinner of horror stories, Stoker was not best known as a writer. He was best known as the manager of the Lyceum Theater in London, the home theater of Sir Henry Irving, the leading Shakespearean actor of his day. And uh, the difference between Bram Stoker and Edgar Allan Poe, or Bram Stoker and practically every other great horror writer, is Bram Stoker is pretty much a one-hit wonder. I mean, Bram Stoker wrote 18 books, and the average person would be hard-pressed to name one more. You know, now some people who are real vampire fans or horror fans will say, oh, I know Lair of the White Worm, you know, or, you know, or, or Lady Shroud or one of those. But none of those books come up to Dracula. He wrote one book that was bigger than himself. He wrote one book that was better and bigger than, than anything else he ever wrote. There's nothing that he wrote other than Dracula that comes anywhere close to it. And it's not like, like a Charles Dickens. You say like, oh, Charles Dickens, you know, uh, he wrote Oliver Twist. Yeah, what, what else did he write? Oh, Christmas Carol, David Copperfield, Telltale Cities, Great Expectations. You know, Mark Twain, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Life on the Mississippi, Connecticut Yankee, King Arthur's Court, Prince of the Pauper, Bram Stoker, Dracula. What was that Dracula's guest book or something like that? Is that it, something that he wrote that's like a spinoff or something? It's actually, it was the last thing he was working on. He was working on a collection of short stories uh, as he was dying. And, uh, you know, the thing about Braun Stoker was that Stoker died uh, in April of 1912. In fact, the last thing he probably knew, heard was that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and gone to the bottom of the North Atlantic. Mm -hmm. uh, so he dies right you know, around the same time the Titanic goes down. And uh, he's working on this last book, which is going to be a collection of short stories. And he uses a uh, a story, uh, the lead story, you know, Dracula's Guest, which was originally going to be part of, of the, the Dracula book. It was an excise thing that uh, about Jonathan Harker's trip to the, the before he gets to Transylvania. And so it becomes the lead story and the title of that book, which is Dracula's Guest and Other Stories. So cool. it's a short story, basically. I never read that one. I'll have to check mm -hmm. it out. It's very <laughs> good. It's you know, it's very atmospheric. It's, I'll it's have to grab it. I don't even think I have it, unless it may be in a book that I have, like has a Dracula that might have it included or something. Jay, was there anything you wanted to talk about? Or what were you going to say, Mark? No, I was just going to say, if you take Dracula's Guest and the end of the book, there seems to be some indication that at some point Stoker might have been thinking about a sequel because Dracula ends, the book ends on sort of a, a note of like he was going to have the castle destroyed at the end of the book. And then he just changed his mind. He decided, now let's leave the castle. And it's almost like he's thinking sequel. You yeah. know, he never Part did. <laughs> well, I, one thing I wanted to touch on was we, 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 you said early, early on uh, that just before Poe's death, he went missing for six days, and then he's found like inconsolable in the middle of Baltimore. How long after that does he die? Oh, just days later. I mean, you know, he's okay, just days. He, he okay. discovered October third on the streets of Baltimore, and he dies October seventh. So you okay. know, always, they 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 take him. He's found outside. There was an election. It was election day when Poe was found, and um, they found him outside a polling place you know, which was also an inn and, and had a tavern inside. So they dragged him inside this polling place and sent for a couple people who knew him. Um, they showed up and realized he's in bad shape. 
and that the best thing will be to send him to a hospital in the area. So they transport him to the hospital and he's there for just a few days lingering. And uh, he dies on a Sunday morning, October 7th. So, um, and, and again, the, the, see, the problem with Poe's death is um, when this book came about and I was talking to St. Martin's about, see, it wasn't my idea to write a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. I should, I should, I should cop to that immediately. Um, when a book is done, when you, when you write a book for a, a mainstream publisher, there is a clause in your contract which is called the option clause. It gives them the option to publish your next book. They don't have to publish it, but you need to offer them the next book. So I had done a Twilight Zone book for St. Martin's and it had done well enough for us to have that conversation. So in the fall of 2019, I said, um, we, we had a, I had a conversation with an editor at St. Martin's and I hit this editor with what I thought was my best can't miss a super slick idea and the problem was it missed it missed badly he was not at all interested in my can't miss idea and he counter proposed with an idea and i didn't like his idea and we went back and forth like that for a while and then we kind of realized that we better table this conversation for another day and just as we were getting off the phone he said what about edgar Allan poe and i said well, what about him and he said, well, it seems it's been a while since we've had a major biography of Edgar Allan Poe. I said, no, that doesn't seem right. Didn't we just have a couple? Well, I was thinking the 1990s was the last time there had been a couple. So I said, yeah, I guess it had been a little while. It has been about uh, maybe 20 years or more. And, um, and I said, but why, why me? And he said, well, I think Poe checks a lot of your boxes. And I said, and sometimes it takes somebody else to point out the obvious. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how do you figure? And he said, well, Poe is the father of the modern horror story. You've written about landmark horror topics like Dracula and the Night Stalker. Poe is the father of the modern detective story. You've written a book about a great detective character with Columbo. Poe is a critic most of his life. You were a critic most of your life. Poe was a major 19th century American author. Five of your books are about a major 19th century author, Mark Twain. How does this not check all your boxes? And I thought, well, I guess that's right. But then it came down to the type of book he wanted. And it became very clear very quickly. He wanted the type of book that seems to get published every two years that purports to definitively solve the identity of the Jack the Ripper mystery. Uh, I don't know how many of these books we've had so far, but we're probably up to about 17 definitive suspects as who Jack the Ripper was. Well, he wanted the exact same type of book, I think, um, that would purport to definitively solve the mystery of Poe's death. And I told him, if that's the book you want, my advice to you is to go find yourself another lunatic, because this one's driving <laughs> away right now. Let me tell you why that book could not be published. A, there was no death certificate. B, there was no autopsy. And even if there had been an autopsy, it would have been worthless, beyond worthless, because the state of the autopsy in 1849 was primitive. We, the, the, the modern autopsy comes about during the Civil War. That's when we got very good at cutting up and dissecting bodies, and we knew what to look for. 
Before that, it's a very spotty art. And even if there had been an autopsy, it would have been conducted with the equivalent of butcher's knives and machetes. They, it would be worthless. So there's no death certificate, no autopsy. There's no surviving soft tissue that can be subjected to modern forensics. And the only witnesses to post death are not only unreliable, they contradict each other and they contradict themselves, including the attending physician, John Moran, who leaves three accounts of Poe's death. They are wildly different in details and tone, and he goes so far as to change the time of death and Poe's last words. <clears throat> so if this guy was on the witness stand, any lawyer would tear this guy to shreds. So for all of these reasons, it's a cold case. And then I told this editor, but I tell you the book I will write you. I'm much more interested in how Poe lived than how he died. So I will write you a book that examines his life through the filter of the mystery of his death. So there are alternating chapters in this book, an alternating timeline. The book bounces between the last four months of Poe's life and then flashbacks to the different times of his life that takes chronologically until the two timelines meet at the end. And I told the guy, if I come up with a theory as to how I think Poe died, and I think it is convincing, compelling, and logical, I will present it as such. I will not say I can prove it. I will not go that far. I will, that's <laughs> irresponsible. Um, so do I have a theory as to how Poe died? Yes. Do I think it's the answer? Yes. Do I insist on it? No. If you choose to believe it's rabies or a brain tumor or murder or whatever, be my guest. I think part of the allure of Poe is that there is this mystery that surrounds his death. And the bigger part of me wishes it'll never be solved because we will lose something. We will lose something immense if we ever were able to solve it definitively. There is a great romanticism to not knowing, to thinking that Poe beat us all, left us with a mystery that we can't solve. I like that idea. There's an old saying that there are some mysteries that are not meant to be solved, and I mm -hmm. think one. Yeah, this is one of them. So do you, do you think that whatever it was that culminated in his death is in those six days that are missing? That That's that's what... Part of it is. I think part of it is. You see, I treated the... I took a lot of chances with this book. Now, one of the chances I took with the alternating timelines, because most biographies are written chronologically, A to Z, birth to death. So the alternating timeline was taking a chance, but Poe took chances, and I figured there are a lot of biographies of Poe that take him through his life A to Z. Let's try something different. The other thing I did was I did interviews for the book. Well, how do you do interviews for somebody who died in 1849? There's nobody alive who knew Edgar Allan Poe. There's nobody alive who knew anybody who knew Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> but I was a journalist for 43 years, and I can't pretend to be a different kind of writer. I can't pretend to be some kind of academic or some kind of scholarly writer writing a scholarly biography. I'm a popular writer who writes to be read, as was Poe. And um, I was a journalist, and I was going to use the tools that I had. So I did interviews, and the people I interviewed were Poe scholars, people who spent a lifetime studying minute aspects of Poe's life and his writing, um, forensic pathologists, people who spend their, 
their lives doing autopsies, forensic archaeologists, medical historians. Uh, I have an FBI agent uh, who agreed to examine this, detectives, true crime writers. These were my witnesses. These were the people I, 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 I looked at, and I encouraged all of them not to talk like scholars, not to talk like professionals, to say it the way you would just say it. Don't talk like you're talking to another academic or like you're trying to write to another academic. Talk to me like you would say it just as a normal. And out of this came gold. Out of this process came just wonderful gold. And um, I, I love the interviews in the book. And that is not common for a biography to have those kinds of almost like a documentarian would do it, like a Ken Burns, where you would show something, you have the narrator telling you, then you have an expert appear on camera saying, well, the thing you need to know about this. So I, I, I took a lot of chances. And um, when you take chances like that, it's sort of like jumping off a very high diving board. <laughs> and on your way down, you just hope there's water in the pool when you get there. You know, <laughs> you're not sure. You know, but you, you just have to have a lot of faith that when you get down there, there's going to be a splash. So um, so it's it, but it's the only way I could have written the book. Like I said, you can't pretend to be a different kind of writer. You can't pretend to be something you are not. Uh, it's a very good way to write a bad book uh, and certainly not one true to yourself. So um, I did take those chances and then I acted as a detective on a case. And I treated every known theory about how Poe died as a suspect. And I treated this as a detective and I treated my my witnesses, my my experts as witnesses to all this and asked them, you know, what do you think? Now along the way I could discount a lot of the existing theories about Poe. It's like I start with maybe 25 suspects and then I say, you know, no, no, no. And as a detective, you always keep going back to what's called the primary person of interest. Who is the one suspect in all of this that had the most means and the most opportunity? Is there one in Poe's life that fits that description? I believe there is. That does not mean that that primary suspect did not have accomplices. Alcohol. Alcohol's got to be viewed as an accomplice. Did it kill him? I don't think so. But did it weaken his system? I think it did. The devastating effects on, on drinking, which we talked about before, were so extreme that it probably set him up for something else. It probably weakened his system to the point that it laid him open to something else. Certainly poverty. The fact that he never had money and he was always battling poverty his entire life. Certainly that is an accomplice. To, 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 his, to, to undermine his health and things like this. So there are accomplices too. You, so you have your primary suspect and then you have your accomplices. Do I believe I know who the primary suspect, who are the, the primary person of interest is? Yes. Do I think there are accomplices? Yes. You know. And are there things that I think can be discounted out of hand? Yes. One, for instance, a few years ago, a popular theory went around that Poe died a victim of rabies. But you see, one of the problems with figuring out how Edgar Allan Poe died is that Poe died under what a forensic <clears throat> pathologist would call non-specific symptoms. Non-specific symptoms mean that any number of things could cause that. And what we know of how Poe died 
there's a staggering number of things that could have caused them. We know that he was feverish. We know that he was raving. We know that there was some inflammation of the brain, what they used to call brain fever back then. A lot of things can cause that. A staggering number of things can cause that. So you could take any one of your pet theories and sort of bend those symptoms around your theory and say, aha, that must be what killed Edgar Allan Poe. So rabies went around because can rabies cause all those things? Yeah, sure. But here's one other thing that rabies causes. Uh, an aversion to water. You can't drink liquids if you are dying of rabies. You develop hydrophobia. You will actually foam at the mouth at the very idea of swallowing water if you're dying of rabies. Poe is in the hospital for three days. It's clear he took water, bouillon, you know, so it's liquids. There's no record of him not being able to have liquids, and there's no way he was in the hospital for three days and not had been given liquids. If he swallowed yeah. one drop of water, it wasn't rabies. So we can take rabies off the list. I you know, well, suspect out. You know, it go sounds, home. Sounds a lot like a blow to the head. Well, not so much a blow to the head because that would not have caused uh, some of the other symptoms that were there. And had there been any physical damage, because one of the, the, the theories that came up in the, the 1990s was that Poe was murdered and that he was murdered by the brothers of his fiance at that point, Elmira Royster in, in Richmond, that they tracked him down and beat him to within an inch of his life and that those uh, inadvertently led to his death. So this was a theory that was put forth in a book by a, a writer named John Evangelist Walsh. The problem with that theory is there's no evidence that the brothers felt that strongly. There's no evidence that they followed Poe. And Poe, when he was admitted to the hospital, the first thing they did was examine his body. If there had been wounds like that, any kind of bruisings, any kind of blow to the head, anything like that, it would have been noted. They weren't that primitive. They was in the hospital and his body was thoroughly examined. So if there was that kind of blunt force trauma to the body at that point, it undoubtedly would have been noted at some point. So uh, I discount the murder theory as well. I think the murder theory is, is, is as entertaining as it is, does not hold water. Death by misadventure. Well, um, you know, one of the theories for the, there's two mysteries, remember here. There's, there's a mystery of what killed him. And then there's the mystery of the missing days. Where was he? Yeah. For, for for those days. What what was he doing? Part of the theory that's that that that's been put forth. One of the things, curious things about Poe, and uh, you know, any detective will tell you this. If there's something that's odd that stands out, don't discount it. Never, ever, ever discount that one thing that sort of grabs your attention. Well, here's the one thing that sort of grabs your attention about Poe when he was found. He was found in ill-fitting clothes that were not his own. Now you keep coming back to that one, you know. He's found in clothes that were not his own. Well, there was an election going on. And there used to be this thing called... Now, Baltimore's a rough town back then. Baltimore, it's a rough town now. <laughs> well, by 18... Any town in the, in the 1800s, any American town on the eastern seaboard would have had a port and a harbor district. And the harbor district would have been a rough district, you know. So... But even by those standards, Baltimore was a really hard, rough town. Uh, its nickname was Mob Town. 
And the reason it was nicknamed Mob Town is that these people would riot at the drop of a hat. And they took their rioting very seriously. <laughs> these people rioted every few years like clockwork. And when they rioted, they would drive the mayor and the sheriff out of town. They would burn down the homes of the leading uh, you know, citizens. Uh, the, the militia would have to be come in and the army would have to come in to restore order. It took days to restore order. So Baltimore is a rough town, even by the, the, those days standards. He, he, if he gets to Baltimore and there's an election going on. Now, there was this thing back then called cooping. And cooping was these roving bands of these political parties would kidnap people off the streets. And then they would take them from precinct to precinct, making them vote, repeat voters uh, for their candidate. And then in between stops at polling places, they would keep them uh, penned up or cooped up, if you would. And so the term became cooping. And um, in between, they might make you change clothes so you'd have less chance of being recognized as you went from polling place to polling place. Now, that's a very good explanation as to why Poe might have gone missing for at least a couple of days. And it's also a very good explanation as to... Um, why he was wearing clothes that weren't his own um, and why he might have been, if his health was off the track, being kept in these coops. If he was already sick, this would have been very detrimental to his health. So if he gets kidnapped. Yeah, and, well, he could, he could have also suffered other injuries in like those early days before the, he got to the hospital where if there was a blow to the head, maybe the, the bruise and swelling had gone down and they couldn't detect it. Or maybe they hit him so hard in the stomach they burst a spleen or a liver or something. Uh, we it's just because we didn't have any invasive uh, technologies. They didn't have X-rays back then. You know, they didn't no. have the radio. So you no. know, uh, but but they 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 did ex they know how to examine a body. They did know yeah. how to you know go top to bottom uh, for, for, from you know the nursing staff and the the doctors there did very did very well but you know there's there's some very serious internal things going on with his uh with his nervous system not so much with his circulatory system but with his nervous system because remember it's it's the brain infl inflammation that's 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 kind of the key thing that you keep going back to mm -hmm. that's a telltale thing that he's he's suffering from something that has inflamed the membranes it's inside his skull and that, you know, that, can, that, that usually is not the uh, effect of blunt force trauma unless there's swelling of some kind. And this does not indicate sort of the kind of swelling that leads to a coma or something like that. You know, that usually comes with a brain fracture or something like that. And there's no indication. The skull was actually examined when they dug him up in 1875 and it was in good shape. So, uh, you know, probably not is, is, is what it comes down to. But whatever it is that killed him, you know, if if Poe was sick when he got to Baltimore and he goes missing and gets kidnapped on the streets of some place called Mobtown, this would be very bad for his health. This would be very, very bad. Yeah. He's probably at that point a dead man the moment they find him. You know, and he was a dead man by the moment they find him. It just took him days to die. But, um, you know, but again, you can go round and round about this. You know, and I, I and I have, you know, and and I get, and I said, like I said, I've I've got all of the medical opinion of because I'm I'm certainly no I'm no forensic expert, I'm no medical expert, but I went to the ones who were, and had them examine the case, 
and got their opinion on things and got their, you know, and when, when you come down to it, um, you're still dealing with a mystery. You're still dealing with something yeah. that, again, even with the best theory you've got, you can't prove it. You cannot prove it. And, um, you know, even if we were, you know, the only thing that would ever prove it is one post scholar said, you know, maybe if we dug Poe up and found a, a hatchet sticking out of his back, we might have this solved. But, you know, short of that, what's going to prove it? You know, yeah. even even if you tested the bones and that, that which is all that's going to be left at this point, even if that, those were subjected, there's only so much that will tell you. There's only so much that, that that can tell you. The bones actually might tell you if he had certain diseases. You, they do leave traces. We've treated Egyptian mummies and found, you know, traces of different diseases in in, in, in Egyptian mummies. They tell us they had the disease. They don't tell us whether they died of the disease. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's well, hey, hey guys, uh, we got one minute left, so uh, it's going by fast. It's been amazing. Oh, what wow, a great yeah. show for the season, my favorite season. I start in September, or every day is Halloween ministry type situation. But uh, but what is uh what's the, what's your website, um, uh, Mark, and the best place to get the book? Oh well, the best place to get the book is any bookstore near you because it's all it's it's available through 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 any uh, BAM Barnes and Noble. You can get it through Amazon. Uh, and my website it's it's always very tricky. It's just mynamecom MarkDewitzek.com. Uh, that'll take you to my website. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I'm one of the easiest people in the world to find. So and I try to make it so. So um, always and then these are all topics I love talking about. Obviously. Do you look like Mark Twain? Why does that cross my mind? I mean, there seems I, I, I play Mark like... Twain. If it, if, if it, um, <laughs> it doesn't take much for me to, um, to to get there. You know, I started playing Mark Twain forty-five years ago, when I was twenty-two, and back when I was twenty-two, it took me two hours to look like this. <laughs> I actually had to do the whole Lon Chaney thing with the makeup box and sit and the mustache was fake back then and spray the hair or do the eyebrows and everything and paint in the lines. And that makeup process got shorter and shorter each year. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much down to pick up the white suit, you know, pick up the cigar and go. Um, but and I love the people who ask me, are you doing this on purpose? And I would say, yes, I went back in time, had myself <laughs> arranged DNA, so I would look like Mark Twain when I was 67. No, I'm not doing this on purpose, you know. <laughs> you know? I look like Uncle Fester if I take this off. So. <laughs> but but uh, uh, did you ever see that claymation, The Adventures of Mark Twain? That's I so wrote good. a whole paper about oh, that. Right. I interviewed Will Vinton, and I, uh, love that. I, I, I did a paper for a Mark Twain conference. That's great stoner stuff, for sure. <laughs> it, 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 and, you know, the thing is, they marketed it as a children's movie. Yeah, it's weird. And, and that it's devil scene and it. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. But we appreciate it so much, Mark, and uh, uh, definitely keep us in the loop on future projects, and thanks so much. All right, no, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, guys. Yep, Happy thanks, Halloween. Mark. I got to watch Creep, to Creep Show Season 4 started mm -hmm. on a Shudder. You know, the Creep. Creep. Remember Stephen King? Meteor shit. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Hal Holbrook yeah. was one of my best friends. Uh, Have you seen the series? There's a series oh, now. Yeah, Greg Nicotero. Yeah, yeah, Greg. yeah I, I, I've interviewed Greg several times. Nice. I love it. The new season yeah. starts tonight, so I got to get on that.
<laughs> All right, everybody. Y'all have a good weekend. Take care. Right. Night at Public Radio 107.7 FM New Orleans and Happy Halloween. Next week is Stephen Flowers, Gothic Meditations at Midnight. It's going to break down occult symbolism and Nosferatu, Phantom of the Opera, and all kinds of weirdness with Stephen Flowers. Uh, take care, everybody. Good night.